Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, we are on a holiday weekend, and so there, our numbers are fewer. And I'm a weird guy. I don't know why small crowds energize me, so you better watch out today, okay? Um, we're continuing our study, the Dinner Party Dialogues, and I want to invite your attention to Luke 14. I'll read just three verses, 12 to 14. Um, this is uh, leading into another section, you might say, of this narrative. It's very instructive, I think. And um, I want to ease into the text by, um, you'll note the, my title is Wise Investing. You didn't know I did uh, investment advisement on the side, did you? I don't. Um, when you're doing investing, one of the key questions is, what is your time horizon, right? What is your time horizon? When will you need your money? There is short-term and long-term investing, right? Uh, the proverbial sh uh, short-term investor is what is called the day trader. Uh, there's a radio show on some station in Portland every Saturday about day trading. I honestly wonder why they leave it on, but they do. Um, most, I think, would say that long-term investing is the wisest approach. Buy and hold, trade infrequently. Don't be deterred or, or stimulated too much by the news or your emotions. Um, you're better off, we're told, to, to go long-term. Now, suppose we're talking about investing a life, okay, investing a life. Uh, my life or your life, should it be short-term or long-term? Well, think of young children. Well, they live pretty much for the moment. Regrettably, some teenagers are like that too, right? They kind of live for the moment. Uh, what is long-term investing of a life like? Um... I'm told that today a lot of post-college young people would say a long-term commitment is six months. And somebody in my age bracket would say, are you kidding me? Six months is long-term? No, it's not. So what is long-term investing of a life? Does it mean your entire life? Does it mean a shorter period? I mean, if you are a mature person, I think, and are taking a long-term approach, you might say things like, well, I'd like to be that, and if I'm going to be that, I've got to be accepted into a program that will train me to be that, and if I'm going to be accepted into the program to train me to be that, I'll have to buckle down and study hard now so I can be accepted and be trained and, and take a long-term approach. But does a long-term approach to investing a life include eternity? Does it? I mean, it's a vital question because we have one life to invest, right? We have one opportunity to invest it. We can't go back. We can't start over. This life is not just a dress rehearsal, and at some point we'll push the refresh button and we'll start over. No. If eternity is a part of my time horizon, 
for investing my life, then I need to be aware of that and get busy in certain ways. Now, this text, I think, will help us with these questions because though not obvious, they go to that pretty quickly. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord our God, show us the way of eternal life and the way of life today. Give us wisdom. Fill us with your spirit. Transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. Let your word be to us a means of grace, living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword in our midst. And use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Luke 14, then at verse 12, just three verses. He, that is Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but God's word will never fade. It will abide forever and ever. Every jot and tittle will be fulfilled and accomplished. So here Jesus is. He's at a Pharisee's house. He's at a dinner party. He's being watched. His words are being watched. His actions are being watched. It's a little bit like the Olympics we just had. You know, the way the Pharisees are watching him. And you had the Olympics and somebody did something, say, in gymnastics. And, 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 the, and the announcer said, well, that'll be a two-tenths deduction, you know. And, and, uh, and so they're trying to figure out, well, are they going to get a two-tenths deduction or a one-point deduction on Jesus or a ten-point deduction on Jesus? They're watching him like a hawk for some infraction or error. At this party, the guest list apparently was friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbors and, of course, Jesus. And the topic is hospitality. And the apparent issue in this passage, the apparent issue is, who should I invite to a dinner party when I have one? Jesus looked at those present and he noticed that there were elements of society that were not represented. The poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled, the outcasts, those without resources, with those without power, with those without advocacy, the nobodies in the culture. There were no nobodies in the crowd at the Pharisee's house. Apparently, these Pharisees wanted to establish some kind of religious social club but not a church, as the scriptures define church. Sad to say, there appear to be churches like that today. And Jesus is using this opportunity to teach about the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God. That's the apparent issue, but there's an implied issue that's not very deep into the text. And the implied issue is how to invest your life and your resources. How to invest your life and your resources. Look, 
please carefully at the end of verse 12, the last verse, last word of verse 12, repaid, repaid, right? Repaid. Look at the last verse, 14, the last sentence in the last verse, you will be repaid. So the question is how to be rewarded for the way you live your life. Now, there's little known, I think, it's pretty basic theology, but I think many people in many churches fail to understand um, uh, what this is implying. Let me give you the nickel version now. I may preach a sermon about this later. Boiling a lot of things down to say this. How can I escape the wrath of God at final judgment because of my sins and my disobedience? Well, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm saved. When I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness is applied to me. Uh, My badness, the record of my sins is taken upon Him, and I'm saved. I'm, I'm saved from the wrath to come. And many people take that as if there's no future judgment at all for believers, but that's not true. Uh, there is a final judgment for believers, not for, a, not for admission into heaven, but a judgment of rewards. The scriptures are clear about this in so many places. I'll mention a few of them today. But, but, it, but it's also there uh, in, at the end of the book of Revelation. And, and so, yes, because I believe in Jesus and the wrath of God will not come upon me for my sin, it doesn't need, mean I don't need to be careful about the way I live and that I will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ because I will. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and each one can be recompensed for his deeds in the flesh according to what he's done, whether good or bad. The blood of Jesus Christ did not exempt you from that part of final judgment. And I think there's so many people in in evangelical churches today that that have no thought for that at all. But that is a part of what Jesus is talking about here, it seems to me, certainly as it applies to us. Now, so in one sense, this text is a stewardship sermon, right? Are you a good steward of your life? And how will you be repaid or rewarded? The assumption is, and let's get this, this is, this is very interesting. The assumption is that everybody's investing their life some way. Everybody is using their life, some of their resources, on other people. This text doesn't even speak to those that are so miserly and self-absorbed and narcissistic that they spend everything on themselves. It, it's not even touching that group. It's assuming that people are investing in some way, their lives. So, okay, let's look at three points relatively quickly, all right? Uh, Verse 14, the last verse. You say, why are you starting the last verse? Because I'm the preacher today, so that's what I want to do, all right? I think it'll make a lot of sense if I do. There will be a resurrection of the just. Verse 14, we'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, the most, one of the most fundamental worldview point in that phrase is this. This life that you and I live right now up to the point of the grave is not the only life that there is. This life is not the only life that there is. There's coming a resurrection of just 
and a life after that resurrection of the just is the clear implication. The Sadducees, back in the time of Jesus, did not believe in that. They did not believe there would be a resurrection. Um, you, you learned maybe in Sunday school or vacation Bible, vacation Bible school that the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the future. They don't believe in the resurrection. That sounds pretty sad to me. But we've got people similar to that today. Whatever you want to call them, materialists, naturalists. There are people out there today that believe there's nothing that exists that's non-physical. There's no soul to survive the grave. It's a type of reductionism. There are various words you can put to it, but, but at the end of the day, these are people that believe there's just physical stuff and nothing else, and when you die, that's all there is. They don't, that group certainly doesn't believe in a resurrection at all. But in fact, there is a coming resurrection unto eternal life and unto eternal death. There's coming, a coming resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Acts 24, verse 14, says that explicitly. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, of the godly and the ungodly, of God's people and those who are not God's people. There's a resurrection unto eternal life, and there's a resurrection accompanied by eternal death. So there's a resurrection with rewards. That's what... That's what I said just a moment ago. Who are the just? Who are the, the resurrection of the just? Who are the just? Well, they're not those who have perfected themselves by self-effort. That is not true. There are many that try that. None succeed at that. There's no one that's just because they made themselves just. Uh, the just are those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have received his forgiveness and they have received his righteousness credited to the credited to their account, and they begin to bring forth works in keeping with their repentance, they, not to save themselves, but to show that they have been genuinely saved. So, this resurrection of the just, how should we react to it? Well, the first thing, I think, is that we've got to know about it, right? And we've got to tell, warn other people about it, and then we've got to prepare for it, Right? I mean, at, at, at some point, and actually I think it recurs, <laughs> uh, Ben Calvert had to take board exams, and he prepared for them. And actually, as I understand it, you have to recertify every five years or so. I can't, isn't that right? Something like that, every five years? So, seven, okay. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? So, in academics, so suppose you got an exam coming up. What do you do? You prepare for it. Um, suppose you're studying for the CPA exam, and you prepare for it. And so there is this resurrection of the just that's coming, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're just, and you should prepare for it, beginning right now. You should take a long-term approach. And so my question is, do we? 
Do we even think about the fact that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one can be recompensed for his deeds in the flesh according to what he's done, whether good or bad? Do we even think about that? Do we let, we let that guide our life today, tomorrow, the next day, the next? How many days of our lives do we live with absolutely no thought of this, no planning for this, as if it's not a reality? How many of us live as practical atheists? What's a practical atheist? It's somebody that says on Sunday, I believe there's a God, can recite the creed, and lives from Sunday afternoon to the next Sunday morning as if there's no God. No thought of God, no thought of judgment, no thought of holiness, no thought of how can I please God today. I think if we would be honest, all of us would say we live much too much of our lives like that. And so if we live like that, listen carefully, we live out of accord with reality. And that's a type of insanity, isn't it? I don't know particular definitions of insanity, but one of them is you, live out of, you, you don't live in accord with reality. And that's reality. So there's this resurrection of the just that's coming. Secondly, A very small repayment can be obtained by investing our lives in this life only. A very small repayment can be obtained by investing our lives in this life only. And so he talks about, Jesus talks about in this passage, who he says, who not to invite to your dinner party. When you give a dinner party or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Now, you might ask, what do you mean? I can't invite my brother to dinner? Well, that sounds kind of weird. Well, if you dig a little deeper beneath the surface in, 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 in the original language, I think you'll see that what Jesus is saying is, look, he's saying don't limit your invitation list to your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors. He's saying, I think you can have these people over, but not only these. Why not? Well, it says, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. You be repaid in this life. And the implication there, and I'll take you another text or two in a minute. The implication there is, if you're rewarded that way in this life, That tit for tat, I'll invite them, they'll invite me. I'll take a nice steak to their house, they'll bring a nice, I mean, I'll have a nice steak here, they'll have me over for a nice steak. I'll serve them a nice bottle of wine, they'll serve me a nice bottle of wine, that kind of thing. Then he says, that's the only reward you'll get. And you might say, well, is that the only reward that I should be thinking about? I hope you remember the first point of my sermon, I don't think so. I think our investment horizon needs to be a lot longer than that. Will they invite me back? Back in in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching about giving to the poor and fasting, he explicitly says things, I think, that are related to this. He says, look, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father that is in heaven. So the question is, reward from your Father that's in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and, the, and in the streets, that they may be pri- praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you have give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the question is, will I be rewarded now, or will I be rewarded in eternity Will I be rewarded now by human beings or will I be rewarded by God in the future? And and also in Matthew 6 at verse 16, when he's talking about fasting, it's very similar. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They've received their reward. It's a done deal. All the reward they'll get is the fact that other people see them and think well of them. But the fact that God might see what they do and, and, be well of, and, and think well of them is not on the horizon of the people that are first spoken about in Matthew 6, verse 16 and following. So, lessons. There is no real generosity and therefore no eternal reward for giving to those who can and will give back to you in this life. There is no real generosity and therefore no eternal reward for giving to those who can and will give back to you in this life. Reciprocity in this life is rejected as a biblical motivation. Can they reciprocate should not demand a yes answer. It's pseudo-generosity if we give only to receive. That is selfishness. And the reason there's no heavenly reward for this, it's not walking worthy of the gospel. It does not demonstrate the gospel. It does not demonstrate our sonship. Listen at this, and you might turn to it in Luke 6, earlier in the the gospel of of Luke at verse 32, um, when um, he's telling us to love our enemies. Um, He says, look, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind, Ben's word today, He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your father's merciful. So look, he's saying, look, if, if, you, if you give to others so that you can get, by, get back by way of reciprocity, he said, well, what's the big deal there? Non-believers do that. I mean, that's the way things are lived in this world. He said, to be different is to be like your father in heaven who gives to the ungrateful, and to the unworthy. So thirdly, so I said first, there is a resurrection of the just. And secondly, I said in so many words, if if we give for reasons of reciprocity, we get very little reward. And then thirdly, I'm telling you, there's an extremely large blessing that awaits those who will defer repayment until the next life. There's an extremely large blessing or reward that awaits those who will defer repayment until the next life. So who are we invite 
to our feast. Who do we include on our invitation list? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Who were these? They were the social outcasts of the day. They were the social outcasts. You remember when Jesus healed the man born blind in John chapter 9, at verse 2, they said to him, well, who sinned, Jesus, that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? See, they, they took it that, that if you were an outcast, it must have been because of sin and something you did. In the eyes of the Pharisees, sin and struggles were connected. And so, these poor, crippled, blind, well, those people must be great sinners that they wouldn't have those problems in the eyes of the Pharisees. They wanted a religious social club built on the exclusion of the unclean, and they could never see themselves as unclean like they really were. So why should they invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? Well, the poor, crippled, and blind, and lame will be blessed, and they who do the inviting will be blessed because they'll be repaid according to their works, according to what they've done by God at the resurrection of the just. And so that's a much bigger, better, and more enduring payment. They cannot repay you now, but God will repay you in the future. So, some other lessons, please. First, Christian fellowship should not have social limits. Christian fellowship should not have social limits. Secondly, maybe surprisingly, Truly Christian fellowship cannot have social limits. If your fellowship has social limits, it's not truly Christian. It's not gospel-based, and it's not compelling to the watching world. So I used to say in Alabama, I can pick on them because I'm 2,500 miles away, I could illustrate this with like the ducks and the beavers, but I'll just pick on the Alabamians since they're not here to defend themselves. I used to say, look, if you meet a group of five other Christians and you find that two of them went to Auburn and two of them went to Alabama and one of them was a misfit because he didn't go to either Auburn or Alabama and you went to Auburn and you immediately liked the people that went to Auburn better, that's not Christian fellowship. That's not Christian connection at all. Well, I want to get to know these people. I want them in my fellowship group. I want them in my prayer group. And so what you're saying is this. The basis of fellowship is Christ plus you went to Auburn. It's Christ plus you dress like me. It's Christ plus you drive a car like me. It's Christ plus you were educated like me. If those things are true, then I can have fellowship with you. If those things are not true, I can't have fellowship with you. Friend, that is not Christian fellowship. At all. At all. In his book, Life Together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, this is a squirrely book, there's... There are some passages in this book by Bonhoeffer that are as good as anything ever been written. And there's some in here, some in here that make me want to pull what little hair out that I have left. It's just, it's just a, it's a mixed bag. But one of the ways he's really good is when he talks about uh, uh, it, living life together and, and he, when he says, look, if you want to call Christian fellowship being based on Christ plus something else, 
then it's not Christian fellowship at all. Here's what we do. Let me, let me explain this a little more. So if I said to you, do we believe we're saved by Christ plus the way we're baptized? You'd say no. Are we saved by Christ plus the way we worship? You'd say no. Are we, if I said, are we saved by Christ plus uh, our level of sanctification? You'd say no. And you would trumpet the gospel as Luther would trumpet the gospel and you'd say, it's Christ alone. It's by Christ alone that we're saved. But then people that do that then go and practice Christ plus fellowship. And it's in thousands of evangelical churches in the United States of America. It's in the books about how to start churches. Gather people together that are homogeneous. They'll fit. They'll feel comfortable. They'll like one another. You can build a church that's not the church that Jesus wants built. You can build a church that's not a church that reflects the gospel. Here's another book, The Compelling, Compelling Community uh, by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. They were Reformed Baptists, but, you know, cut them some slack, all right? So they, they're basic, the, basic, the big, big word in this book is compelling. It's compelling. He says, look, what kind of fellowship commends the gospel and compels people to think it's the gospel and they can see the gospel? He talks about, Dunlop and Dever talk about the gospel plus community and gospel revealing community. And gospel revealing community is community that has the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, hardly welcomed in the midst of it. Don't neglect the poor, is what he's saying. The crippled, the blind. And that's easy to do. You can do it. It's it's natural, it's default. You say, well, what would this look like? Okay, so let's say you're coming up Thanksgiving. Uh, I've got a little lead time built in here, so you've got a chance to maybe do something like this. And suppose, um, this, Sally and I used to do this, uh, kind of. We, we lived in Birmingham. We didn't have any family close. And holidays, pastors, uh, our view was pastors need to be around. We had a Thanksgiving Eve service or a Thanksgiving Day service. And so we couldn't drive 300 miles to family. So what did we do? We used to ask ourselves the question, well, who will be alone for Thanksgiving dinner? Let's have them over. You could do that. You could do that. Who will be alone? You could do that at Christmas too, right? Who will be alone? Who will not have a place to go? Think about church picnics and church gatherings, you know. You've got several gatherings in this church, deck night and other things, women's and men's connect. Who do you talk to when you go to a church event? Who would Jesus talk to? I may miss my bet here, but I think Jesus would walk up and he'd look around and he would ask the question, who's alone? Who doesn't have a friend here? Who who doesn't have somebody to talk to here? Now, what we naturally do is walk up and there's a friend there we haven't seen all week or two weeks or a month. Oh, I got to go see 
Billy Bob or Sue, right? You don't have to. You don't have to. Find somebody alone. Find somebody that feels like and has positioned themselves maybe on the margins. Yeah, yeah. Now, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the people on the margins, you've got no right to sit back and, yeah, tell them, preacher, they need to come, they need to reach out to me. No, you need to get your act together, too. You need to realize if you're in Christ, you fit. You see, if, if a person that is in this category, any other category like this, thinks, I don't fit here, you're working on the same standard that those that exclude you work on. Exactly the same standard. I would fit here if I went to the right school, if I dressed the right way, if I made enough money, if I was educated enough, I would fit here. But I don't, those things are not true to me. I don't fit here. That's not the gospel either. That's not the gospel either. That's very far from the gospel as well. So, we have, I think, an instance again and again and again of the necessity of faith. We need faith in Jesus to be saved, yes. We need faith to believe that if I will live my life with a long-term eternity horizon, that he will reward me as the scripture says he will. And we need to to see and and live by what Jesus did for us in the gospel. He gave his his life away for those who could not repay. Who are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and and the lame spiritually? It's you and me. It's you and me. In the eyes of Jesus, that's you and me. We're the nobodies in the eye of Jesus, eyes of Jesus. You think you're somebody in the eyes of Jesus? You don't know the gospel. You don't know the gospel if you think, well, he saved me because of who I am. He saved me because I'm not poor, crippled, blind, lame, naked, whatever. Fill it, fill it in. We've got to live in the light of the final banquet, the final judgment. He'll talk, we'll get to this in another sermon or two about the final banquet. So when it comes to investing our lives, some of us that have an investment horizon that's much too short, we're thinking about what we'll get back today or tomorrow or in 10 or 20 years, but friend, I urge you to look long, to live long, Long to invest long. Because according to the scripture, the best way to invest your life is to divest your life. To give it away in service, in love. Jesus did. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. And just as he got his life back in a glorified state. He promises that we too will be rewarded in the life to come, good measure, pressed down, overflowing. And that is true blessing. Let us pray. Lord our God, forgive us that we've lived Christ plus in regard to fellowship. Forgive us that the gospel that we profess is not informed our relationships. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us a heads up 
about the resurrection of the, ju of the, of the just and the rewards that are possible for us in heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name, your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.